Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. James Gurney, welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be with you. Yeah, this is really exciting because I've been following you for a really long time. I have both your books and um, you're just a huge influence. So this is this is really exciting. I'm grateful to well, have I'm, you on. I'm glad we overcame the issues we had with mainly with my internet, yeah. which wasn't made it impossible to do a video call. And that's what I would love to have done one earlier, but uh, finally, I'm in a, not my own studio, but in a friend's house, so I can do the call with you and on video. Do you you live in the Hudson Valley, don't you? I do. I live in uh, the Hudson Valley for about forty years. And so, are you kind of out in the boonies in the Hudson Valley, or you just happen to have a lousy internet connection? Both. Uh, we <laughs> live up a about a long, long driveway in the countryside, and they haven't really dealt with bringing the wires out to where we are, which is fine with me because it's not very often we really need to have Zoom. And from what I've heard from people, uh, video calls are not something you want to do all the time anyway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So how far up the river do you live from New York City? We're about 100 miles north of New York City. We're pretty close to Frederick Church's Olana, which is uh, near us. And if you're familiar with Frederick Church's landscape paintings, He's the one who did those amazing sunsets, and they really do look like that from here. And um, so it's uh, it's a cool place to live. I grew up in California, though, and oh. uh, and you're from the Hudson Valley yourself. I'm from right? New from, Windsor. Yeah, near, I know you've uh, been Newburgh. there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I have a friend who's an artist down that way, and uh, and you've done workshops out that way, right? Mm-hmm. I have. Yeah. Yep. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I I often miss New York. So when I when you speak of the Hudson Valley, it makes me a little homesick. So it's really beautiful there. Well, what I loved about moving here, you know, in the early '80s, is just the four season climate. From an artist's point of view, if you can work at home, it's really nice being able to see the winters and all the effects of snow and the beautiful fall colors. And so I look out my studio window uh, just to enjoy that the beauty of it. And we do a lot of painting. Right now, the mosquitoes are pretty bad. We were out painting in the garden yesterday, just getting eaten alive. So it's not oh, always ideal, but it's most of the time it's pretty good for being out painting. Okay, I don't want to get off the topic of James Gurney, but I got to tell you one quick story because when you mentioned fall colors, it reminded me of this. When I first moved to Utah, and for those who don't know Utah, it's a high desert. So lots of tumbleweed, not a lot of trees unless they've been planted. And... um I was in Utah and I met with this older gentleman. I happened to be riding the car. We were headed somewhere together and he asked me where I was from. And I said, I was from New York. And he said, wow, being from New York, you must really appreciate our fall colors. <laughs> I almost died. He pointed to the mountains up ahead and there was like one or two little spots of yellow um, on the mountain. And I, was, I said, you really haven't been to New York, have you? 
He said, no. I think a lot of people from out here think the whole state is concrete. Yeah, well, Utah, you have the colors of the rocks, and I don't know if there are some beautiful landforms right near where oh, you are. Oh, it's gorgeous but, um, here, but not for the fall colors. <laughs> but for the long vistas, which you yeah. always have, it's, yeah. it's very enviable to oh, have that to gorgeous. paint from. It's gorgeous. And, you know, I like looking, going to places where artists painted famous paintings like Bierstadt and uh, Thomas Cole and, and all the other artists that lived around here. But the vistas they had were really different from what we have now because there were far fewer trees. Most of the trees had been taken down for the hemlock industry for the, all the dealing with leather tanning and stuff like that. So oh, I didn't know that. They, they, they'd clear cut the Adirondacks and the Catskills were mostly, uh, trees were mostly gone, but now they've all grown back. So it's really a success story for returning back to the original habitats. Wow, I had no idea. I really didn't know that. Well, that explains it because I mean, I, I've looked at the Hudson River School paintings and growing up back there, I've thought, where, how could they see so far? I don't remember ever being anywhere on the Hudson where I could see this far. <laughs> but that, that explains it. Yes, and you know, you've forced to paint uh, a lot of forest interiors around here, yeah. which I think are one of the hardest things in the world to paint because you're dealing with all the layers of depth and all the value changes. And yeah, uh, there are a few painters who could pull it off, but it's really challenging. Yeah, it is. I want to talk a little bit about your history. I mean, I think a lot of us know something about it, but maybe you could just give us a brief history of how you started as a child and what led up to where you are today. Okay. Well, for those who don't know my work at all, I'm probably best known for being a painter of things that can't be photographed, of things from history, fantasy, and science fiction. Uh, so my interest in golden age illustration and academic painting is part of my interest in bringing these worlds to life. And my heroes were from that period. And this goes back to when I was like 10 years old. I'm the youngest of five kids. My dad uh, was a mechanical engineer. So he was always building things. To me, drawings meant uh, designing things like sailboats and bicycles. He would make recumbent bicycles. And as a kid, because I was the youngest of five, uh, I got a lot of benign neglect, let's call it, where my parents would leave me to the tools. I know you love tools, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, we had a wood shop and um, we had a metal shop. So I learned how to use a cutting torch when I was in fourth grade and wow. welding and brazing and all that stuff. And I used a table saw to make my own kite sticks when I was in fourth grade. Now the thought of that as a parent of turning a kid loose with a t table saw is just mind blowing, especially to make kite sticks, which are finicky. But mm -hmm. like, it was an unusual childhood because I didn't have any artists in my world. My parents weren't artists. I didn't know any artists, but I loved Norman Rockwell. I loved Howard Pyle and, and N.C. Wyeth because we had books illustrated by them in our house. And uh, I got to see some Rockwell paintings when I was about 12 years old. And that's getting the book by Arthur Guptill about Rockwell as an illustrator kind of made me aware that this is something you can actually, people can actually do and here's how, and he was really clear about it. So that kind of got me on a course to teaching myself art. So I, I even though I took art classes in high school and college, um, I realized I could learn more on my own. Really? Um, when it was time to go to college, I wanted to go straight to art school and my parents said to me, you know, you might want to take four years off and just study everything else before you specialize, which is really good advice. So 
that was probably the only advice of theirs that I took. Um, and I took a little astronomy, paleontology, history, uh, and I majored in archaeology, and just because I love the subject, not knowing that later I'd be working for National Geographic as an illustrator of their archaeological subjects. Hmm. So it was kind of the work I started to get into when I started to become a professional was the last holdover of the golden age of American illustration. So I was really lucky to do that. You say you taught yourself. What does that even mean? What did that look like? Well, I was the kind of person where I could ride my bicycle to the library, find books, how-to books on whatever the subject was, whether it was casting or it's hard for, I think, for people who are um, growing up now to imagine a world where there's no YouTube, there's no instructional stuff online and where to find stuff, you have to go to a used bookstore or to a library and hope to find something. Mm -hmm. uh, I made a gorilla mask in college where I made a, a latex and um, fiberglass teeth and I had to make a life mask, a life mold with plaster over my face and uh, with the friend, help of a friend. I had no idea how to do this. It was just complete a shot in the dark. Um, but the same was true with, with art. I didn't know, you know how to go about this, uh, but I figured it out. And after I graduated as an uh, archaeological or an archaeologist in UC Berkeley, I went on to art school because a number of my friends had gone down there. And the art school I chose was Art Center, um, but I only stayed there for a couple semesters because I got hired out to work as a background painter for animated film. Hmm. Um, I'm I'm really interested in in art education. I know you are too, and I'm interested in kind of the way it's taught and and how much has come back, how much people have relearned about uh, drawing and painting techniques from the golden age of of when it was, the, we were, they were doing amazing stuff. Uh, and uh, I found I could learn more about that world, not by not in art school, but by reading old books, Harold Speed's books, for example, which are, are in print still. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, Rockwell and other people. There's not a whole lot of primary source material, but there there's a lot. And on my blog, Gurney Journey, I share a lot of stories of how artists worked in the, in the past, how they used maquettes, how they used lay figures. I know you've made miniature mm -hmm. figures for, for your multi-figure things, which is a real common practice that they did in the past. And I wanted to learn all, I just wanted to soak up all that stuff. Yeah. So when, I dropped out of art school, worked in the movie business, and in all my spare time, I got a, uh, I got a membership at the zoo and the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles. So I went there and, and studied, uh, did a lot of studies of the animal skeletons, various kinds of animals, and then the life studies I did of animals. I wanted to be an animal illustrator. Okay. And uh, so I, I was doing sketches of elephants and tigers and, and all that at the zoo. <clears throat> and I realized that, you know, in art school, even in an ideal art school, you'd never get that much time to spend sketching directly from animals. And, and I tell art students, um, if you're interested in animals or science, go to the Natural History Museum near you or a university near you and ask to go behind the scenes and they're happy to share their stuff with artists to do studies. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a great way to learn about anything. There's great stuff in Denver. There's great stuff in, I suppose, in Salt Lake City, in the Bay Area. Yeah, we got California. pretty good stuff, especially for dinosaurs. Yeah. We got a great dinosaur <laughs> museum here, which you'd appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, okay. So you're right out of college. Well, not right out of college. You, you dropped out of college after a few semesters and then you're, you're doing these backdrops, but you're also going to the zoo. I mean, this, the photography was obviously used at the time. Did, why did you feel like you could become an animal illustrator? Hadn't it been kind of replaced by photography by that point? Well, I mean, there was always photography of animals, of course, but uh, wildlife art as a genre was certainly, and still is, a very big thing. Bob Kuhn and Guy Koliak and uh, people like that inspired me. Hmm. Um, but I was interested in everything. I was also interested, I had grown up, you know, reading old copies of National Geographic magazine, and I was absolutely fascinated by the idea of discovering a lost civilization. Hmm. Uh, when I was a kid, I'd read about Hiram Bingham discovering Machu Picchu in 1911, a whole civilization that no one really knew about, a whole city in the mountains. And I thought, wow, you know, that's a fascinating idea. And what would it be like to, to imagine that? And um, when it came time to start taking my portfolio around, I thought, I'll just take a wild shot and show my stuff to National Geographic. And uh, they were not interested at first because a lot of the samples I had were fantasy and science fiction. But I eventually uh, was able to get a job working for them, doing, uh, doing paintings where I would work with an archaeologist to reconstruct a world that's you know completely lost. So how did you get that meeting with them? I just... I mean, the old thing of pound, pounding the pavement, taking your book around is kind of how it was done then. Mm -hmm. and, and in some ways, still a good way to, to get your stuff out there. I sent postcards. I had a lot of uh, five by seven prints of, what, of my samples, and I sent those around to the art directors. You could get listing of art directors on, in the Black Book and other guidebooks for illustrators, and you'd send uh, samples to them by mail, and hmm. I, well, I did something that other people didn't do, which is to, to do a pre-printed postcard that had uh, three different checkboxes. One that said, um, the, the optimistic one was like, I, I love your work and I have a job waiting for you, which never got checked. <laughs> and the least encouraging one was, your samples don't suit our current needs, or kind of a polite brush off. Right, right. But the other one was, I like your work, but we don't have anything right now. The kind of work where we are looking for is this with a blank they could fill out. And that was great. That because was smart. I, I could get feedback from them about what they really wanted and how I could tailor my presentation to each client. And I got work pretty fast from science fiction uh, publishers back in the day when um, paper, paperbacks hired illustrators to do the covers for them. Uh, and, um, and that's kind of what got me rolling. So how did this transition into your Dinotopia series? Well, I was doing a combination of the science fiction and fantasy paperbacks mm -hmm. and the National Geographic work. So I was going on location to uh, Etruscan, Italy to do a story on the Etruscans. And we were sitting around the campfire with Rick Bronson, who is our consultant. And uh, I asked him, what's, what's kind of your dream as an archaeologist? And he said, I would love to be like the next guy to find something like Troy or, or Machu Picchu. You know, mm -hmm. I want to find... A lost world and I thought well I can actually do my own lost city so in my spare time I designed waterfall city did a big panoramic painting of 
waterfall city. Is that the one and that's on a, your pictures that you sent me? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's it's look a combination at that. Of, it's, a, it's a combination of uh, Italian hill towns. Yeah, that's the maquette for uh, another city called Chandara. Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's. Well, help me find that one. And I want to. I want to see that that city you're talking about. Yeah, that's probably it there. No, that's that's in one view of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So well. anyway, so I did this this painting of Waterfall City, and uh, I didn't have any particular way of making a living from doing this painting. It was just a, a portfolio piece. And go back to the thumbnail. Maybe I can find the one you want. Let's see if I can find it. Um, There's another one. Keep going down. There, okay, go up, up, up from there. Two rows up, right there, you're on it now. Oh, that's whoa, it. that's a different angle. Oh, is that, oh man, that so is. You can, so you can probably scroll into that pretty close. That is hardcore. But, but this was a combination cow. of, I did two versions of this. This is actually the second version, but they're real similar. But the idea is combining Niagara Falls and an Italian hill town, essentially. And um, I went to Niagara Falls with an oil sketchbook an oil sketch set up and did studies on location. I tried to do it the same way, you know, Frederick Church would have done it and uh, do studies on location, build a maquette. I built several maquettes of this and that really, really helped me with the lighting. Because one thing I find, and this is sort of a general principle that people can put to use is that lighting is what sells realism mm -hmm. in an imaginary scene like this. If you can do remote cast shadows, you can get convincing cast shadows and light and shadow in a consistent form, you're much more likely to be able to sell an idea as being imaginary. Wait, what's a remote cast shadow? A remote cast shadow would be something that um, where the, the shadow is cast by something that's far from what it's being cast on. Oh. I, just, I just call it a remote cast shadow. Okay. Um, the, the world is full of all kinds of accidental cast shadows like that. And most most times when you're making up something, you don't think of putting them in there. Right. So it's so what you're doing is you're trying to put in that um, unpredictability. And in doing that, you're making it look real because we are surrounded by it. Right, exactly. And that is where um, doing plein air painting and studies on location uh, is a real help because it just gets into your bloodstream a lot of ideas for forms and textures and just little details of the real world that you can adapt into your imaginary painting. Yeah. And this interest in sketching from life is something that came from uh, a, a book that I wrote in 1982 called The Artist's Guide to Sketching with a buddy of mine named Thomas Kincaid before he was the painter of light. And he and I uh, rode the freight trains across America after dropping out of art school, and we came up with this crazy idea to write. And so this is before National Geographic, before the yeah. Science fiction but this paperbacks. is Thomas Kincaid on your right here. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's yeah. me on the left. Yeah, me with hair. <laughs> <laughs> but we 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 got tired of all the marker fumes and all the abstract theory of art school. We thought let's do like Charles Corralt or John Steinbeck or Jack Kerouac did, except for the sketchbook. 
And in the time, this is long before urban sketching or plein air painting became terms. We just had this idea, why don't we just sleep in, you know, like gravestone graveyards and on top of like uh, hay trucks and go to lumber wow. camps and just meet people, just see the, the world. So we rode the freights from LA to Missouri where his mother lived. And we just sketched absolutely everything, mostly in all black and white, because we figured if there's going to be a book on this, it's going to have to be in black and white. And it was a great training ground because working in markers and, and discrete values of markers is a really good way to learn uh, how to draw and paint. And I, I didn't really, I wasn't that comfortable with color yet, to be honest. And uh, I was still learning that, but this kind of helped set the stage for me to learn how to paint in full color. And about how old were you when you guys took this trip? Uh, well, I was about uh, 21, 20, 21. What an amazing opportunity. So we were the youngest authors that ever published any books with, that, with Watson Guptill. It wasn't easy getting a job or getting the commission from them because uh, we were kind of nutcases that arrived at their door wearing uniforms with short haircuts. We figured, you know, we should get these uniforms made to... Um, and we wore these to our background job at uh, Ralph Bakshi Productions. Huh. Uh, and uh, I had known Tom since 1976 when we were freshman roommates at UC Berkeley. Uh, and that's where we met. So I, by the time I was working on this movie and working on the book, Artist's Guide to Sketching, we'd already known each other for five or six years. And no uh, this is, again, long before he became a Christian, before he um, became the painter of light and painted all the cottages. And he was really, and in some ways, my teacher for painting and color, because he had had already, he had had a lot of mileage in painting, and I had 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 a lot of mileage in drawing. Mm -hmm. So we learned a lot from each other. I want to talk about the dinosaurs. How did you get to that? Well, I thought dinosaurs would be a perfect subject, not only because I loved animals, but because they're, they're only come to life by our imagination. And yet we want to see what they look like. So it requires the work of artists to bring them to life. They're not like dragons or mermaids. They're something that are real. And that appealed to me very much and still does. And our ideas of them keeps evolving in a way. I mean, this is, well, the, all these dinosaurs in this particular scene wouldn't have had feathers, but uh, a lot of the small theropods now are known to have feathers. But at the time I did the first Dinotopia book, we didn't know that. So, uh, wow. so our knowledge has, has devolved along with the dinosaurs themselves. I was always interested in this meeting point between uh, science and art. And I still am. I mean, I'm interested in botanical illustration. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's, I've been to the convention of the, um, the guys who do the medical illustration. There's several graduate programs for people who do illustrations for people doing surgeries mm -hmm. and uh, they have to have a good background in medicine and dissection to do that effectively. And there's other areas. There's the, of course, the Society of Vertebrate, Vertebrate Paleontology, which is the group of, uh, of, of uh, dinosaur artists. And uh, all this is, is just a great way to, to find that matching point between uh, the expressive side of creating images and learning about the world. Hmm. Okay, now I want to kind of nerd out a little bit and get technical. I've, I've, 
I've always had so many questions for you about how you make art. And one of them, when I look at this painting is perspective. So two thoughts that I have when I look at this, having, as you mentioned, I've done multi-figure stuff as well. And one of the things that I think is difficult is imagining all these figures, putting them into the space and making the perspective from figure to figure work, not only with one figure next to another figure, but also relative to the architecture around them and relative to the animals and other objects around them. So like you have this uh, dinosaur here. What is this dinosaur? Is this isn't a brontosaurus, is it? I'm not up on my dinosaur. It's an apatosaurus, yeah. Okay. And yeah, then this... triceratops below and a brachiosaurus on the left. Okay, so you have this apatosaurus, and then it mm -hmm. it's it recedes into space beautifully and convincingly as it goes with the larger head and neck into the smaller tail receding into space. And then the recession of your figures is so convincing. Can you just speak to that? How do you work out the space? Do you do it absolutely mathematically with a linear perspective drawing, even down to the dinosaur, or is a lot of it intuitive? Well, I don't need to tell you this, Jeff, because I know you did that amazing painting of the, the Christ triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Oh, thanks. But, but um, and, and you did this too, I'm sure, building little sets and doing a, a line drawing of the perspective. But that's the way I approach this. And these a painting like this is one from Journey to Chandara, which came out in, I think, 2006. And uh, for that one, I had to do a painting like this in about five days, so I couldn't spend forever on it. But I, I went through all the steps of getting miniature maquettes. I used maquettes that were a very small scale by a guy named David Krentz, who's a great dinosaur sculptor. Uh, I built a little maquette of the archway in the background. Mm -hmm. But on the left, I ended up just setting up kindergarten blocks for my son's a kindergarten, you know, block set. No kidding. And use those to just get the perspective of what was going on on the left, and also to cast a shadow on the left, because here most of the scene is lit from reflected light bouncing off the ground, and the only way I could study that is is by um, setting it up and seeing what happens. And then for the figures, if I don't know if you can scroll into that closer, it's some of the figures, but um, I I just posed in a series of costumes that we have and ran around in the driveway and took photos because I wanted to have dynamic poses of people moving around. So it, it ends up being a composite of a lot of elements. So the line drawing of the perspective, the photographs of the lighting in the maquette, the miniatures of the dinosaurs, and then the figures. And uh, hmm. throw it all together and, and just paint it. I think I have a Somewhere or another, I have in one of my books, I have a description of that whole process. Yeah. So how do you decide when you're doing the linear perspective, how do you decide how extreme to make the recession? Because these figures are relatively s similar in size, even though they're far apart from one another. And you could have done, you mentioned my triumphal entry. My recession was much more dramatic. Really large figures in the front and really small at a, at probably a smaller distance than you have. And I think yours works better, <laughs> which is why I ask. And so how do you decide how much to make them recede or, or how, how much to blow up this linear perspective or how tight to make it? 
Well, I uh, on one like this, let me go full screen on this here. Um, on this one, I just did a quick pencil uh, perspective study based on all these references. And uh, there's, it's basically one vanishing point behind through that archway. And the other vanishing point would be remote far to the left. Mm -hmm. uh, the verticals are close to vertical. But as far as the amount of, of recession of those figures, probably that figure on the left should be a little bigger, come to think. But um, I just want them to fit into the scene. So but, um, it's okay to break the gave, rules, you're saying, a little bit. Well, I wanted to hang the figures off of the uh, horizon. I mean, this is a good rule of thumb, is that the, uh, the eye level of the viewer on a flat plane like this is about five, five and a half feet off the ground. Mm -hmm. So if you draw a horizontal line through the middle of the heads of the main figures, of the males anyway, mm -hmm. uh, that should intersect them all about the same place. And hanging the figures off the uh, horizon is something I read about in a perspective book I had since I was a kid. And it's just a good, quick way to do it. Oh, yeah. Uh, I use... Yeah, I even the front figures' heads on the same horizon line, they're all on it. Yeah. I never if, noticed if that. If there was something going up and down or a high area or low area, of course, they would go up or down. But um, that's just a, a basic principle that you can follow. And that principle is based on the idea that the viewer is standing and therefore they they dictate the horizon line at the same level as the people in the painting. Oh yeah. And um right. I mean there's there's guys in the 19th century like Holman Hunt and uh Ludwig Deutsch and Jerome of course who did this kind of scene, this type of scene all the time, the orientalist paintings or whatever and um they had the same kind of problems, except in some cases, uh, they had the problem of not being able to set up and paint on the location because in some cultures it was considered blasphemous to capture an image in a sketchbook. I mean, you know the story of uh, Frederick Church when he went to, to sketch at Petra. He um, had been there soon after Jerome's party had been through, and one of their members had been killed by... Uh, angry Bedouins who are upset with them capturing likenesses of of the landscapes. So uh, so Frederick Church was able to convince the locals to let him go and get a good local guide. Um, but he went through and did those amazing studies of Petra uh, from observation and and used those for uh, one of his studio paintings of Petra. I love this whole tradition of the mm -hmm. artist as explorer. Uh, mm -hmm going on location and, and capturing it in their sketchbook, or going home to the studio and and coming up with something that's imaginative based on, on their original studies. Okay, so I wanna just talk a little bit more about that perspective thing. So here's one that's much more complex because you're, you, first of all, you're not hanging the figures on the horizon, you're looking down at the figures. Um, maybe, could you speak to how you resolve this one a little bit? Sure. The, the buildings vanish to a vanishing point that's kind of behind that flag that's above the right here in, carriage, yeah. about, about up there. And with a city like this where it's made by humans but not by some central architectural authority, the vanishing points may vary a little bit uh, in, in, to the right or to the left mm. of each other. 
And if you look at the, if you're drawing in Venice or in Florence, uh, that's true. There's a, there's a lot of, you often need to set up seven or eight vanishing points. Uh, but the figures, as you say, are going down a stairway and the dinosaurs are too. Um, so there's big steps for the dinosaurs and littler steps in the middle for the humans. It's such a great, you have such an amazing imagination to even think of that kind of a detail. Well, I was, as I was working on this painting, the lower right area was kind of blank and it didn't really have much happening there and it needed a little color accent. And right then my kids were about the right age, they were like six and four or so. They came upstairs to say goodnight because they were in their pajamas. I said, hey, would you guys want to be in this painting? And they said, okay, dad, does this mean we could stay up late? And uh, I said, sure. So I told them to sit still and so I painted them in uh, pretty quick there. They got to put on a Superman vest for that. <laughs> and uh, I know you you sketch your kids too, yeah, right? Yeah, they're in my paintings all the time, yeah. Is this them right here? Yeah, that's them. That's the awesome. Right. <laughs> so again, though, your figures are, they don't recede as much. I think I'm going to take that as a lesson in my work and tone it down a little bit. I find that my, it's easy to make the, um, make the perspective a little too dramatic. But I, you seem I'm, to really have control of it. You can get uh, at, especially in Britain, they have really great stores for getting miniature train layouts and uh, little figures at various scales and little plastic figures. So from really tiny, almost the size of ants to an inch tall, a little bigger, that people buy for making train layouts. And those things are really, really great for um, building, if you want to build a, a scene and set up little figures and, and do that. It, it's a great way to go. But the, so <clears throat> when you're looking at a maquette though, the distances are very short. So you can't just observe a maquette and because it's gonna, it's not gonna look big. You have to, you know, you, ha you have to create more recession in the actual painting in order to make it look like it's actually a large piece of architecture. Isn't that right? Well, it depends where you set up the camera. If you set up the camera farther back and then telephoto it a little bit, then the relative scale of the figures will get closer in size, which sounds like that's what you're, what you're after more in yours. Right, right. Okay, I see what you're doing. So you're photographing these maquettes and you're getting up close to them in order to create the illusion of depth. Yeah, I usually set them up outdoors in natural light, actual sunlight, because sunlight will behave the same way at a small scale as it does with a full scale subject. And okay. that includes uh, that includes even the scale of the figures. I mean, one of the, I think the mis mistaken ideas people have about photography is that photos lie. They don't really lie, it's just they see differently than humans. And depending on how you set up your lenses, you can get different kinds of effects. Right. If you want to have, you know, the elements closer in scale, then you have to just uh, pull the camera back a little bit. You can get depth of field uh, so it doesn't look like a toy by uh, setting your shutter speed at a long exposure on a maquette. And if you do that, um, you can set the, sh you can set the, excuse me, not the shutter speed, the aperture, set the aperture really small, and that'll give you a lot more depth of field. Right. Does that make sense? You yep, know about absolutely. how to do that. Yep, yep. Okay. So for those people who are listening, I have to point out that James is, appears to be drawing right now. 
<laughs> it's Am sort I of right? a, an odd habit I have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You draw all the time. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Your YouTube channel is such an inspiration because it just, I wish I was more like you. It feels like you're at restaurants, you're drawing, you're at, you're at events, you're drawing, you're at a parade, you're drawing, you're, it seems like everywhere you are, you're drawing or painting. Is, is that just, it, is that the, the case or is it just the way it seems when we watch your YouTube channel? It's kind of a nasty habit, like a smoker habit where I, I can't <laughs> stop It's a stop great myself. habit. Are you kidding me? That's amazing. Have you always been like that or is this something that you've nurtured as you've gotten yeah, older? Yeah, I mean, as a kid, I, my, like my parents would always fall asleep in front of the TV and I'd like to, I always like to draw them sleeping really? on their barca loungers. Like my dad would fall asleep and he'd put his head way back and snore. My mom would, her head would go forward. And uh, that's the kind of thing I like to sketch as a kid. Also our family dogs, they were sort of subjects a lot. That's kind so of unusual. Just... I mean, most people are doing superheroes or trains or cars or, or cartoons or most, that's what most kids seem to do. But you're- Did you do stuff like that when you were a kid? No, I didn't draw hardly at all when I was a kid. My, when, when I, when, I mean, I knew I was good at it. I knew I had an aptitude for it because when I did draw, I could see that mine was a little stronger than your average kid, but I didn't draw. I was always outside playing. Uh, so did you, did you know other artists when you were a kid? Like when you would say 13? No, none, not at all. I don't think so. Why do you ask? Well, I, I didn't either. That's a funny thing until I got to college and uh, became friends with Tom Kincaid and then later with my wife, Jeanette, I didn't really know that many other people. My parents didn't sketch. I didn't draw. So I was just, just something I did, like just what I did. I don't know. I just enjoyed sketching. Yeah. I love that. I wish I was more like that. It's not, it's not, uh, something I do naturally. I have to push myself to sketch regularly and, and really try and keep myself motivated. But it's, it's like, a for you, it seems like an addiction. Well, it was a dangerous habit in a way, because one time we went camping up in around Mendocino and I wanted to sketch a bull and it was on the far side of the field with his cows. And I thought I'll do a sketch of it. So I got my, I had dip pens at the time. No one told me to use a, another kind of pen. So I had my bottle of ink and my dip pens and I had a folding chair and I set up in the middle of this field and I started sketching the bull. And then the bull, I didn't realize this, but bulls are dangerous to set up in the field. They're one of the most dangerous animals you can be around. It started charging at me at full speed. And I thought, well, what, what can I do? I, I could, I'm too far to run for the fences. So what it is, I just grabbed a big hunk of grass, held it out at arm's length to the bull. And for some reason, he swerved at the last minute at the grass and didn't knock me down. And oh uh, my God. So stuff like that. Yeah, that's wild. All right. You know, speaking of sketching, maybe we could jump ahead to some of the things that you are doing on YouTube. But before we do that, I've got a, I'm so glad you posted these or sent me these images. So these are images that you did of me at the Porch Society. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. My gosh. I love these. Yeah. And I, man, and you know, I got to tell you, I'm going to be completely honest. I wish you didn't put these in your sketchbook because I, I, I would love to buy these from you, but they are just too cool. So this is in 10 years old when I and David Casson were painting next to each other and everyone else in the audience, this is what's crazy. Everyone else is just walking around and looking at the 15 artists 
you sat down and decided to draw the backs of two of us. How can I resist? You guys were so picturesque. I mean, there you are working with your left hand, doing this larger than life uh, head portrait. And I was astounded to watch how you did that. It's just beautiful. Oh, thank and you had you. everyone completely spellbound. Thank you. Man, it, well, it was an honor to be drawn by you for sure. And then I think there was three of them here. It was, uh, let's see, there were three. Yeah, no, right here. This was my- I'm a stalker. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. Stalk me for all you who, want. I love for it. For those who don't know, the, the Portrait Society is a really great gathering that happens every year, once in Washington, then it alternates with uh, Atlanta. And you get some of the best painters, not only Jeff Hine and David Casson, but Quang Ho and Mary White and a lot of other incredible painters. And you are Doing on the demos. faculty often as well. Yeah. I'm usually on the sidelines sketching people on stage. Um, but I've done a couple of things there and, and there's a face off where everybody does a sketch from a, of like 15 artists sketch from, uh, five models for a three hour period each. And, um, it's just really a, a great kind of nonprofit group and, uh, well, very well organized and a lot of fun and a great place if you want to watch people, um, paint and just do shop talk with anybody. Yeah. It's an awesome organization. I've actually had them on the show a couple times. So I'm a huge advocate of the Portrait Society of America. All right. So another thing I want to talk about is your gouache paintings, because you've inspired me to pick up gouache. And then I picked it up and I wanted to throw it at a wall because I love the way it looks when you do it. But what's frustrating about gouache to me is it's uh this isn't gouache let me find a good that's gouache. oil yeah. yeah that's oil if you if you happen to see one i'm missing is this one gouache nope that's oil that's oil too yeah that's oil. <laughs> i'm really i'm missing the best ones are in oil no <laughs> no your so gouache you paintings one. are awesome what about this blockbuster video that's oil too you're picking all the oils that's that's oil that's gouache no that's watercolor and gouache oh here's a gouache i remember this video okay yeah, that's actually casein. And I paint with both casein, which is, a, I'll tell you a little more about that in a minute, but I paint with that and gouache a lot like an oil painter would, like the, my approach to, because most of my background is in oil painting. What but, do you mean uh, by that? When I, well, I think a lot of people will approach uh, gouache either really systematically painting background to foreground, but I, I sort of did a light lay in brushed in the basic lines and then just corrected things as I went along. Okay. This is done with a really limited palette. And uh, we can talk about that too, if you want, but I would love to, I yeah. often work with just three colors plus white to just limit the range of possibilities and force myself into certain color harmonies. So this is, this is casein. This is the paint medium that was uh, very popular before acrylics came along. In fact, it's the oldest kind of paint medium known to humankind. There are no kidding. Uh, archaeological sites in Africa where they have casein pigments in palettes that go back about 50,000 years. No so kidding. It's, it's a, it's a milk-based paint. Milk is the binder, the glue that holds the pigment together. And what's nice about it, they still make it, um, is it's not as sticky as acrylic. It's fairly opaque, fair, dries fairly matte, but you can varnish it if you want. Um, hmm. And it, it just feels a lot like oil, but just much faster. So you have to make decisions a little quicker. And that's okay because the light changes when you're outside and you have to think faster. 
Well, here's the thing that bothers me about gouache is the values. I can't control the values. It's so frustrating. <laughs> Where the oil painting, you just put it down, you mix it right, you get the right value, and it stays there. But with gouache, well, I think your audience. What's that? Your audience has to know that, that, that don't kid your audience because you are a master of gouache too. You, I think you said your first experience painting was like a year and a half ago. You did a painting of your sleeping son, I think. Oh yeah, but it's it so just, hard. I did it. I managed it to make it work. Well, thank you. I managed to make it work, but you, when I watch you on, in, on YouTube, it just seems effortless. Um, but I just wonder, are there any tips you can give for controlling the medium? Are you are controlling the values? Are you predicting just from experience where it's going to go once you put it down? If it's going to sink in to be darker or sink in to be lighter, is that just something yes. that comes with time? Yeah, I think it becomes second nature. So I don't think about that much, but it is a factor that you have to think about at first, especially if you're going to paint in dark values. The darks tend to lighten a lot. And sometimes the lights will darken, which is weird. Yeah, I know. So the values will compress a little bit. And if you want to varnish gouache or casein, you can to bring out those rich darks, especially if you're doing a very dark keyed painting. Um, but there's a beauty to the matte finish of gouache. Yeah. Or if you want to use acrylic, if you want to have a sealed surface, a closed surface, as it's called, you can use acrylic gouache or acrylic gouache. It's a form of acrylic that has... Uh, uh, that's very opaque and that dries matte. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you like the feel of acrylic, that's a good one to use. So what, when you go out, so I've been painting plain air a lot more than I ever used to. I've been trying to get a lot more practice doing it. And I think about you all the time because, and watching you, one day you're doing casein, one day you're doing gouache, one day you're doing oil, one day you're doing a drawing, one day you're doing watercolor. And uh, I end up just always oil. Just, oh, I like it. I'm like, today I'm going to do, I'm going to try something different. And then I just go right back to oil. What is it that you're thinking about when you go out into the field that makes you decide which medium you're going to choose for that day? A lot of times it's just what I happen to have in the backpack, honestly. That goes for the colors, too. I tend to just not bring everything with me and just throw them in at the last minute, throw in a few colors, and then try to make them work. Um, but really, the reason I don't use oil as much is, is that I just found it was bothering me as far as the solvents. Maybe I'm not handling them right. My wife is real sensitive to uh, oil, even on location. And uh, I think maybe a lot of people in art schools were, when I was in art school, were using oils with a lot of like gum turpentine. And yeah, that's and I know you're sensitive to this too. Don't you have like a gadget for reclosing your, your solvent holder? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good idea to, to learn good practices if you do work in oils so that you can um, avoid the problems of solvents, not only for your lungs and your health, but also for the brushes, because you can keep as you've, I'm sure, told people, you can keep your brushes working much longer if you leave them in oil. Yeah. Ricky Mujica does this a lot as well as you, and uh, it's just a good practice to do. But the good thing about uh, the water media is that uh, you can leave it in your brush. It's not going to kill your brush. You don't have to worry about the solvents breaking open in your backpack. 
It happened to me a few times on international trips where I opened a suitcase and there's like cobalt dryer and solvent all over all my clothes. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so oils are great, of course, and they have a great tradition, but there's also a great tradition of um, gouache. I mean, there's people like Thomas Moran and, and Adolf Menzel, who's a huge hero of mine, who uh, worked in gouache on location and did beautiful stuff with it. He actually preferred gouache to oil, even though he worked in both media. So one of the things I love about gouache is that flat finish, but then you have two choices. You can varnish it and then you lose the matte finish, or you can put it behind glass and then you lose the matte finish. Do you have any thoughts on that, on how to preserve that quality when you display it? Well, if you're displaying it in your house, you know, you can, you don't need to have the glass uh, as long as you don't spill anything on it. Gouache is a very sensitive delicate surface. So if you're taking it out or showing it somewhere else or selling it in the gallery, you need to have the glass over it. But um, I do a lot of my gouache studies in a, a sketchbook. So it's protected in between the pages of a sketchbook. Right. You know, I, right. I do uh, a lot of stuff in, in these. I don't know if you can see this. Yep. But a yep. Let's five by eight watercolor sketchbook. And this this kind of thing is good for, I don't know what's in here, blank. Um, like here's one of uh, the dog Smooth that nice. I paint a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so these are, th- this is a sketchbook made by Pentalic, but there's other brands uh, like Moleskin and Strathmore that have various kinds of um, finishes and covers. That's my wife, Jeanette, in the kitchen. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, I like doing scenes that are just really ordinary like this, uh, just every everyday scenes. I did one painting in a um, grocery store. It's sort of as a personal challenge. I wanted to see what would happen if I set up an easel in the grocery store, if anyone would bust me for it. So I set it up. I, I put on a uniform shirt, first of all. No kidding. Uh, and then <laughs> I, I set up my tripod easel inside the shopping cart. Are you and serious? Because I, uh, I love the way these oranges and apples looked like, with the mirror over them and the, and the yeah. sort of the condensation on the mirror. It just looks so paintable. And the thing about gouache, it doesn't have a smell. It's not like painting an oil. But I thought I'd probably last five minutes before the manager comes and says, what, the, what are you doing over there? Thing is, nobody bothered me at all. Really? Like half of 40 minutes while my wife did the shopping. Uh, and I finished the whole sketch and I, and I couldn't believe it. I folded everything up, put everything away. But how come <laughs> nobody stopped me? And did I anyone even to stop to and, look at it? No, they thought I was just some weird guy. What, what I learned about this is that in grocery stores, a lot of the shelves are restocked, not by the stores, um, people on staff, yeah. but by contractors who work for different companies like Pepperidge Farm or whatever, oh. who come in and restock the shelves. So there's actually, you wouldn't know this unless you worked in a grocery store. There's a lot of people from the outside with different uniforms and they kind of get free reign. So for anyone wants to uh, do sketches that in the grocery store, just wear a uniform. So the employees think you're you're just one of the vendors. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I want to do a sketch in a Walmart. That's like the Mount Everest of uh, painting well, in weird places. Yeah, you could definitely get away with it in Walmart. 
let's look at some more of your uh, plain air stuff. I hope you have a bunch of it here because it's some of my absolute favorite stuff that you've done. Or if there's anything that you really want to talk about, I'd love to talk no, about it too. Um, whatever you want. No, this is... So this is, this is gouache and... Well, you're using gouache kind of like watercolor because there's a lot of transparency here. Am I right? Yes, this is done in a garden in uh, Monterey, California. And I was looking at these uh, flowers and I did a, a kind of a yellow painting around everything but the white flowers. I left those white, the white of the paper, and lightly put a few washes over those. No, no kidding. But then the yellow came through the other green, the greens and the leaves. And so it was a semi-opaque approach that I did on this one. Um, and uh, I had to kind of deconstruct it to figure out how to approach dealing with this subject matter and dealing with those different values. Well, and this reminds me of what you said about painting inside a forest. There's all that chaos. This seems like similar problem to painting in the middle of the forest, all the tree trunks and stuff. Yeah, very much so. And and any kind of natural subject, we were just painting in the garden yesterday and uh, I was just painting a single flower, but there was so much going on in this one flower uh, that uh, I was just blown away by. And uh, anytime you paint anything, you know, you're dealing with so much more data information that you can't possibly capture. So the first job when you set up the paint is what to remove, what to simplify, how to tone down all the detail because you can't possibly capture everything. And uh, once you take away everything you can take away, then you zoom in and try to make the most of what you have left. And that's just a general principle. I don't think in these like verbal terms when I'm on location though, I'm, I'm usually, my, my brain is like a scrambled egg mess. And it's only later for those who watch my videos on my YouTube channel that I try to think back like, what was I thinking? What was my thought process when I was doing this? And I try to reconstruct that and do that in the voiceover. Well, it's become so intuitive. You've been doing this for so long. You're, you, it's got to be 90% subconscious at this point, all these, this decision-making. I suppose, but every time I approach a painting, I approach it a different way. And as a number of people have pointed out, and this is true, I, uh, my paintings look, usually look horrible halfway through. <laughs> and uh, people say, oh, that's a disaster. But you managed to pull it off more or less. So um, I think there's usually a point in a picture where you just have to push it uphill, yeah. where it's not coming out well and you have to really work it. And it's a matter of uh, a series of fixing mistakes, I'd say. I had a student, I was doing a demo online and I had a student say to me, man, Jeff, that looks really bad or something to that effect <laughs> in the, in the early in the process. And I said, all right, just, just give me a little bit of time. It worked out. I pulled it, I pulled it off, but, uh, it's, I think we all go through that ugly stage sometimes. So, yeah, I think it was Adolf Menzel said, art is a bolting horse. It's out of control, and you know, bolting horse. Like if you have a yeah, horse that gets yeah. loose and runs off. Yeah, it's true. It feels that way a lot of times. You just kind of have to rein it in. I'll look at one of your drawings. I think one of the things I've also noticed about you, like with the drawing of or painting of your wife in the kitchen, you you've refined your drawing skills to a point where you can paint moving figures. 
and it you just again you make it seem effortless are there any other than just mileage because obviously that's a huge part of this you've just put in the mileage you've been drawing for so many years so much is there anything else as far as tips that you could offer to deal with moving subjects well, to deal with moving subjects, if you look for a subject where they keep coming back to the same pose, I mean, people looking at a cell phone, in this case, this is a guy It was across the aisle from me on an air flight from London to the US. And he was just watching his video screen in front of him. He had no idea I was sketching him there. Hmm. Um, and uh, I, I love the lighting on him and that kind of really interesting nose and the planes of his face. And he did move a bit, but he always came back to the same pose. And that's true of a lot of uh, musicians, especially flute players, if they're at a microphone, they're going to stay rock solid, move a little bit, but come back. I mean, there's other poses like ballerinas uh, or most animals when they're moving around freely that don't come back to the same pose. There, in that case, you have to use what I call the flash glance method, where you look carefully and then close your eyes, and then try to remember what the short-term impression was. And uh, this is a method that they used in the academies and um, a lot of the early newspaper illustrators like Frederick Gruger would have used. And you just have to train your memory. Um, oh, that's some, incredible. Some teachers like Darren Roussard is really interested in the subject of how do you train the memory of a student? There were... Um, there were schools and teachers who focused on this subject and who, you know, like in, at Art Center, there was a teacher named Jack Lenwood who had set up a model, have you start on it and then take away the model and have you try to remember what you saw in your first impression. Sometimes he'd warn people, sometimes he wouldn't. Uh, and I think training imagination and memory is really it's super important in addition to training your observational skills, because if you want to do this kind of work where you're, where you're doing stuff from your imagination. Hmm. So how much, how often do you rely on that, that, what did you call the flash memory technique? The flash glance method. Flash glance method. Um, uh, pretty often if I'm doing stuff in public, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at, a scene and then trying to remember like a, a pose, a, just try to get the essence of a pose in a few seconds and then elaborate it from memory. Um, there's a, a guy to follow on Instagram called Don, Donald Colley, C-O-L-L-E-Y, mm -hmm. who is a master of sketching on subways and buses. And uh, he's just a, a great guy. And he's, he's just got a great ability to uh, lock in a pose in public somewhere and capture it and and do that and it's just like any other kind of practice yeah hmm. okay so i want to talk a little bit about your career so you went from working for national geographic then you started your book series dinotopia right and then yeah now it seems as though you're you're focused on just it's almost like you're retired, but you're just sketching day in and day out in your sketchbooks, which you can't be selling. So what is your career now? Can you define it? Well, if you just define career in terms of what I'm focusing on, it has changed over, over the years. 
And I have, like you say, I focused on commissioned illustration, background paintings for uh, animation. And then uh, and I've also done in recent years a lot of dinosaur illustration, paleo art, as it's called. Oh, you are so still that, doing in that. In a case like that. Yeah, in a case like that, I get called from, say, Scientific American to reconstruct a, a extinct animal. Like there was a mammal that ate dinosaurs, and my job was to there show him. Yeah, there's a a mammal that um, that ate this little. They found this uh, skeleton of a baby dinosaur in its stomach, so they wanted to show what this would look like. So I was, I was trying to think. Well, what would this? When would this happen? When would it eat a hatchling dinosaur? And I I was at that point in. In my life, I was um, sketching baby robins in a nest outside our back door. So I'd climb up on a ladder and I'd watch them each time as they got a little bigger. And at one point when they were just fledged out and ready to fly, a raccoon was able to get up there and, and kill all these babies. And I thought, that's exactly what this thing would look like. It was a rainy night and this thing waited until it got its opportunity. So I, I set the scene at nighttime just like I saw this raccoon do with his baby birds. Um, so you, you can take ideas from analogous ideas from the real world, from actual wildlife, and apply them to dinosaurs. And that includes not only ideas for situations like that, but looking at uh, wildlife photos, wildlife videos to get ideas. My attitude towards reference is to use everything. And I think, I know you do too. I went through a period like you did where I was, I was sort of avoiding photography altogether. And not as a big thing, but just, just to try to focus on using charcoal studies as my ref, main reference. Um, but uh, I've also used photos too, and I, I don't really have any uh, like wish to say you know, one's better than the other, because I think anything that makes your picture better is a, is a real help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you in part by Rosemary Brushes. If you're one of my listeners who's a professional artist, you're already using Rosemary Brushes. But for the rest of you, come on. Take your work a little more seriously. Stop buying the other brands. It's just not worth it. Every now and then you may get lucky and buy a good brush from another brand. But use the brand that professionals like myself are using. Go to rosemaryandco.com, link in the description or the show notes, and get yourself some quality brushes before your next painting. What are you doing now? I mean, what, how do you spend most of your time? Is it the YouTube channel sketching? I mean, you, you are taking some commissions, as you put it, but you seem to spend a lot of time on the YouTube channel and sketching. So can you maybe give me kind of what, uh, what your day-to-day -day is like or your weeks look like? Sure. Well, the YouTube channel takes a lot of time, obviously. Yeah. I try to come out with a new one every month or so, and I'm always working on various ones at various stages. Um, but I'm also sketching for other purposes. Right now I'm working on three different book proposals, which I just went through the contract stage on that. So I'll have three different books coming out in 2024 and 2025. Uh, so I'm back into books again. Um, but my career has meant different sources of income that have changed over the years. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a combination of book royalties video streaming, book sales. We have a, you know, like a website where we sell signed books, uh, lectures and demos, not a lot of teaching, but, but lectures at art schools and stuff like that. 
uh, YouTube advertising revenues, um, commissioned illustrations, uh, original sales, a few of them, mostly through auctions. Mm -hmm. um, museum rentals, we've had about um, 30 or 35 different one-man shows that have traveled around to various art museums and science museums, uh, mostly Dinotopia artwork. And wow. uh, those usually pay a rental fee. And then there's licensing and a few other things, but um, it all adds up to a living. It's not a not a huge living, but it's since we keep our expenses low, we're able to not do Patreon and not do teaching and not do sales of originals. Because one of the reasons I want to have um, royalties coming in is that, you know, as I get older, uh, the nice thing about royalties is they keep coming in, hopefully. And we're lucky yeah. that we have all of our books still in print. That's unusual uh, for people who do books. Usually books go out of print, especially children's books and stuff like that. So we're lucky that the books are still in print. But you know what's weird is even in this world of inflation, uh, the books are the same exact price. Like the Dinotopia books were $30 in 1992, and they're $30 now. Really? No kidding. It's amazing. That is amazing. For those who aren't familiar with Dinotopia, it's a um, an illustrated book about a lost world where people and dinosaurs live together. So it's it's illustrated throughout for 160 pages uh, with oil paintings that um, tell the story of a father and a son who explore this world and document what they find. And it's a uh, it one of the reasons I wanted to come up with this as a as a format for doing artwork was that. I could basically do every kind of subject that I like doing uh, and make it fit into this alternate universe. And uh, I've done four different books in the Dinotopia universe so far. Uh, and what you're looking at are a few different standalone paintings, which we released as art prints when they first came out. But these standalone prints are also in the books that were published. Yes, and that was one of the challenges of designing Dinotopia was to come up with uh, a fully illustrated story with a minimum of text, but also have certain images which stand out as keynotes that are a little more elaborate, a little bigger mm -hmm. usually, uh, that don't depend on the narrative that much, but stand alone as, a, as an art print. And that's what we did with this one. This is called Garden of Hope. This, this one traveled around just last year in an exhibit of fantasy illustration, which went from the Norman Rockwell Museum where it started wow. to Chattanooga, Tennessee and Flint, Michigan. Uh, and um, this was a very successful show. There aren't many shows of fantasy and science fiction, but this one, as all shows we've done over the years with science fiction and fantasy was, a, was very popular. Oh, I'm not surprised. This work is just extraordinary. And as you put it, it really does bring you back to the golden age of illustration. It's so incredible. I'm just gonna pull up a couple more here. Now this one looks like a study. Yeah, I mean, it has the ragged edge. Yeah. Uh, it's Arthur Dennison and Bix uh, looking and, and there's firelight in front of them. So you get that warm light coming from the front and then that cool light coming from that archway behind. So for something like this, I set up maquettes of the dinosaurs with uh, gels over the light, gels for those, I know you know this, but yeah. a lot of people don't know. Gels are colored plastic you put over your light sources to change the color of the light. And uh, if you have uh, a, an amber 
gel on one source and a bluish gel on another makes a really interesting contrast that sort of simulates the end of day or, or something like this. Yeah. But, um, and, and I noticed, you know, you talked about having unpredictable shadows. Uh, you know, what did you call those shadows from distant objects? Forgive me. My memory is not good. Oh, that's okay. Remote cast shadows. Remote I call cast them. Yeah. shadows. Yeah. And so I'm looking at this, if I was to put this together and I, th and I'm thinking to myself, I don't necessarily know where some of these lights are coming from. Like, where is the light coming from on his face? Where is the light coming from the blue light coming from on this dinosaur? And yet it's really convincing. And I mean, you can cheat, you can cheat this a little bit with the lighting, uh, but uh, it's all to drive the story. And in this case, Arthur and Bix are, are meeting with some dinosaur elders about the possibility of exploring the island. So this is an important meeting for them to get the plans for their trip. And the idea of story driving illustration and driving all these aesthetic choices is something that I really picked up from studying Howard Pyle and some of the early days of American illustration. He really focused on uh, story as a center, centerpiece of his teaching. And um, when he talked about composition, it was mainly in terms of putting a line drawing of a student on a wall and then projecting your imagination as a student into the world that you've tried to, you've tried to visualize. And uh, it raises an interesting topic, which is worth discussing. That is, what can you really teach best as, an, as a teacher? Uh, can you teach what's going on in your mind, like story and character? Or do you teach technique, uh, like brushes and, and solvents and stuff? And I, Howard Pyle had the benefit, fortunately, of people coming to his classes from the Philadelphia Academy and other really good technical training. But uh, Jesse Wilcox Smith described how, I think I wrote down her quote here somewhere, what it was like for her to come into this class where they were talking about story. She said, um, working with Pyle swept away all the cobwebs and confusions that so beset the path of the art student. And mm. she said it all became clear to her. All the training she had became clear when she they talked about story. There's another famous anecdote about Pyle, who was working on his own assignments. He was very prolific as an illustrator for Harper's and other magazines. And he would uh, knock out uh, you know, a painting a day easily. And there were, some of them were pretty complex. And his students would watch him. So one time he was painting a, a complex scene of a, of a man and a woman, I think, and it took him about three hours to paint it. And Frank Schoonover and a couple other students were avidly watching this whole process. And at the end of the three hours, uh, Pyle said, well, Frank, did you learn anything by watching? And he said, oh yes, sir. I, I learned so much by watching you paint all about technique and all about how to do it. He says, no, you didn't learn anything. He says, really, why is that? Because you didn't know what I was doing up in here. And what he meant was, mm -hmm. there's stuff going on in your mind when you're developing a picture. That's the important thing. The, the technique and the surface, the edges, the values, all that stuff is subservient to the illustration. Hmm. Wow. 
So can you give me some actual concrete examples of how your lighting and composition choices in this particular piece that we, that I'm going to pull back up, um, helped you to tell the story? Okay, well, I, I wanted to, I mean, I don't know if I can verbalize it because it stands as an image um, in this context of the story, but. Um, well, if you were to teach it, me how, how to do it through this piece, you know, okay. from your experience. Well, I mean, here I'm, I'm setting up the contrast of light and shadow uh, and, and also warm and cool as sort of a, a strongly contrasting uh, form of, of forces. And here, you know, mm. Arthur Dennison and Bix are facing the prospect of entering the unknown world beneath and, uh, and then trying to discover something down there. And because he wants to uh, bring back the high tech that Dinotopia used to have in its old days. Uh, and uh, everything in Dinotopia is lit by firelight and it's fairly low tech. Right. But Arthur Dennison, this is set in the 1860s. He wants to bring this high-tech world back. Uh, Bix is a ambassador and translator. That's the, the protoceratops dinosaur but beside him. Um, and so I'm interested in these uh, alternating these, these forces uh, of warm and cool, light and dark, as he makes this fateful choice. So part of it is just you know, setting up eye candy in a way and, and doing something that's fun to paint. Yeah, but also, I'm, yeah. on some level, hopefully, I'm trying to convey some emotions. One of my real inspirations when you talk about um, compositional design and story is Andrew Wyeth, mm -hmm. who grew up surrounded by uh, stories and Robin Hood stories. And his father, of course, was a great illustrator. Um, but he, he uh, brought this understanding of emotion and life and death and light and dark to his paintings of the world around him. He really believed that you should be able to find your subjects within a short distance of home. And, um, and he said, all these landscape painters come into the Brandywine Valley where he lived just to bag a landscape, you know, just to knock something out and look for a subject, a ready-made subject. But he said that that's not at all the way I think. He said, I, I start with an idea. Sometimes it's just an emotion and a rough thumbnail sketch. And from that, um, he pieces together from the world around him all the elements he needs to convey that emotion. And that's the way he worked. Wow. Wyeth was, a, was such a unique uh, thinker, a uniquely different person. I think the most valuable quality of mind of a person is um, to be an original thinker, a problem solver from first principles and from primary sources. Um, because I think there's a tendency in art schools or any school for people to kind of catch a mind virus and think in the same way. Mm -hmm. And what I think I value in artists I admire, and the reason I like a lot of self-taught artists is that you tend to have a completely unique way of working. Yeah. Adolf Menzel, who I mentioned, uh, was a German artist who lived from 1815 to 1905. And he uh, tried to go to the academy, but because he was a very short guy, he was like a four feet five or something like that, a very short guy, he got teased a lot, so he had to drop out. 
So he learned on his own. He kind of regretted not studying the academy, but he developed this really original and unique way of seeing the world, which I, I value as, a, as an inspiration to me. Hmm. Okay, I really appreciate that. And I, I wanna pull up a, a, a couple of pictures again, where, because one of the things that you do when you go plein air painting that I find really interesting, and I don't know if we have an example of that here or not, but I'm gonna pull this one up and I'm gonna assume it might, or I'm gonna assume it is. You will not just paint what you see. Oftentimes you'll come up to a storefront or something and it's in the middle of the day and you paint it at night or vice versa. And it, it's, as you just explained, for you it's about having an idea and then taking the elements around you and using them as needed to help you to explore that idea. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how you handle that when you're out in nature? You know, how, I mean, cause you're completely editing what you see oftentimes. Yeah, sometimes I'm starting with a visual idea, uh, like in this case, a limited palette. I was just trying trying out uh, caseins in this case, my first time using casein. Um, but um, a lot of times I have a, an idea, like I look at an old photo and I notice the way the poles and the treetops as they come against the sky are flared out by the, the light spill that uh, goes, I don't mm -hmm. know, it's some lens artifact or something. I think, how can I capture that in a sketch? So I, I take my sketchbook out and I try to capture the effect that I liked in that early photo. I don't care if it looks like the scene in front of me or not, because real life, a lot of times, if you try to just copy what you see, it's a lot of blue skies, a lot of green trees, and we've kind of seen it before, but the minute you start to change it according to some ideas that you have, the, I think it starts to get interesting. Hmm. Uh, so sometimes something like, sometimes it's a more deliberate, surrealistic idea. Like I did one uh, painting called Fantasy. Well, it's a, it's a painting of a giant robot that's escaped from. I think it was in Utah. There was a in my imagination. I had this. Did you put that one in here? In, no, that's not in there. Oh, unfortunately. okay. But um, I have a, a video called Fantasy in the Wild where I go through this whole process. Yeah of developing the design for this robot. It's like 40 feet tall and it's arriving near, near a, like a McDonald's and a fast food restaurant to help out this car that flipped over. And uh, the design of the robot is like a Komatsu crane. So I developed the design of the robot on location at a construction site. And I did this setting for the scene um, on in a fast food like a franchise landscape, and did the whole thing on location. So it was I had to maintain in my mind the uh, fantasy idea I was trying to develop while looking at the real world. And there's another example if you could scroll down toward the bottom, um, probably in there somewhere. There's a yeah. I'm on your Instagram page right now. Oh, and I okay. Was, I was wondering if uh, if you if that piece you just described is on your Instagram account. It's probably in there somewhere, but pretty far down. Yeah. There, so, there's one. If you click on that one of the of the, the lens flare idea. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, that's one where I started with this idea of a flaring light, which you see in photography sometimes. And I, I walked around 
and found a spot where the sun was just peeping through under that sign. And I, um, I arranged everything in the picture to, to look like that flaring effect. So it's a very subjective light effect. Doesn't look mm. anything like what I was looking at, but I was using the real world as my raw material for this idea. What is the key when you're, when you're changing the colors in a scene so dramatically to still maintaining a convincing realistic scene. I mean, are there certain well, rules that you can't break? Are there certain principles that help you to achieve it? I mean, the values have to be right. Um, the values of the scene I was looking at are, are often similar to what I'm looking at, but in this case, like a case like this, I'm thinking of two values, just the sky, the ground is one light value. And then the um, pole and the far trees and the building on the left are uh, a second darker value. And by grouping those all together, in the real life, if you were to look at a photo of the scene, it was much more variegated than this. And um, I'm really uh, inspired to look at actual photos of scenes of old, old photos because Old cameras really didn't have very good sensors and um, or, or film. So they, they often would reduce subjects to just two values. And, you know, the, the simpler you can simplify the values of a scene, the more impact it'll have. Mm -hmm. This is something that Sargent and a lot of the painters of the past really knew well. And if you look at their thumbnail sketches, the thumbnail studies for their uh, studio paintings, they're very often trying to reduce things to two values. Another good guy to look at for this is Dean Cornwell and Howard Pyle, who were uh, always looking for a way to simplify a subject. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I want to find a few more of these that you've changed, if possible. If you see something that... Um, I think if you go back to the Dropbox folder, yeah, this that's was a demo a I did for the DreamWorks uh, concept artists a few years back. And what I did is I had a little sculpture of a character named Otis that I came up with. <laughs> and I made a, an actual like four inch high maquette and set him up on my easel. And for this demo, I said to the artists, you guys bring along your own figurine or, or figure or character or maquette or toy or whatever you want to call it. And uh, we'll all blow them up to like 40 feet tall and then have them in the scene. So everybody, and these guys all did, and women did amazing results. Um, so uh, this is what, what I did on location. And we'll be doing this again, actually, at Lightbox Expo, which is a gathering in October in Pasadena, uh, just as like a kickoff event leading to the, the start of this convention. Uh, we'll be doing oh, that what we call colossal, colossal characters. There'll be 12 plein air artists who also do a lot in fantasy and science fiction. And um, they'll be bringing along a maquette, placing it in the scene uh, where they're standing at Pasadena. And, um, and uh, there's be a lot of, there'll be, we're gonna invite the public to come. You don't have to be at this convention to be part of this, but the public will also be walking around. All the mentors, the 12 mentors, artists are gonna have orange hats with special insignias. It's gonna be really a blast. Oh so man, that sounds to, amazing. Yeah, and it's it's like on the spot surrealism. 
Yeah, that sounds cool. All right. So I want to ask you before we finish up, I know you're running out of time, but we got, you had mentioned the limited palette. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that and what it is about the limited palette that you find interesting and why you tend to gravitate toward it. Well, as any painter knows, you can start with red, yellow, and blue and white and right. paint almost anything. Um, but you can use almost any red, almost any yellow, and almost any blue, blue, uh, or cyan, yellow, and magenta if you want. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's nice about using a limited palette like that is that it gives you automatic harmonies that you don't get if you have a very large palette and use uh, use samples from all your, your entire palette. What happens, what tends to happen to me, maybe not other people, but I tend to get what I call the fruit salad disease where the painting has a little color from everything all mixed together. Yeah. And it lacks harmony and unity. If you look at the American illustrators of magazines from the 40s and 50s, they worked through a period when the magazines could only have black and white and one color. And they were very resourceful colors. Sometimes they would wow. come up with a with a storytelling illustration that only had black, white, and green. So it's really just two colors: it's black and green, or black and yellow. And uh, when they all when those artists went to full color, they stayed with this idea of the limited palette. Usually, I just have to take a minute to thank each one of my generous patrons for your part in keeping this podcast going. I could not continue to do it without you. So thank you so much. If you're not a patron yet, but you love the show and you listen regularly, please consider becoming a patron. It's really easy to do and it doesn't have to break the bank. Just head over to theundrapedartist.com and click on the link, Be My Patron on Podbean. And then choose a monthly donation amount that fits your budget. It's that simple. And to thank you for your generous donations, once you've reached $100 in total contributions, send me an email to theundrapedartist at gmail.com and I will send you one of our spectacular undraped artist aprons. And it was very interesting to see what they came up with. Here's one where I'm, uh, it's a video, I guess. It's a video, but, um, yeah, but that's a good one. Here's one. Oh, here we go. Oh, that's a yeah, video too, is... but we'll let it play anyway. Let it play, yeah. Let's start with a blue underpainting. You can start with an underpainting color like that. Let it shine just through in the windshield uh, and keep everything else fairly warm. So it's and artificially... You're as long as the values are there, it should work. It's that simple? Yeah. Yeah, and you can... It's a warm monochromatic scheme with a few blue accents that come through from the underpainting. So you can experiment with ideas like this Sometimes I will pre-prime my sketchbook pages with casein or acrylic to give them a, an overall hue and then work with a comp, the complementary color. Like, so if it's a blue color, I'll work with warm colors or I'll, might, maybe I'll have a warm underpainting and use cool colors over it. Hmm. It's, just, it's just, a, just like basic exercise for color, uh, color ideas. And would you, would you, uh, also apply this if you were doing oil? Yes. With the oils, you have the advantage where you can set up pre-mixed strings of color. can't really do that in gouache because it dries so fast. But with oils, you can set up... Um, well, here I, we're looking at a, a video where we're sitting in a car and painting a snow scene. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want to get that feeling of light. So I just have a few colors 
and I just bang in the colors loosely of the snow and shadow, the light bar across there, and then all all the detail of the trees and branches and poles and stuff. Yeah. Um, but by limiting the the colors to just a simple triad or a three-color scheme, um, it gives me everything I need to get a full effect of, of light and color. Well, now, when you say a triad, it's not going to be terribly limited. I mean, I guess it's technically limited because it's only three colors. But my assumption is you're not using a chromatic yellow, a chromatic red, and a chromatic blue. You can, but a, a weaker, if one of those is weaker, like this one I call the iron triad, which has three different pigments that have iron in them, a okay. Prussian blue, yellow ochre, and burnt sienna. So your yellow is a weak yellow, a yellow ochre. It's fairly light, it's fairly strong and tense, but the the burnt sienna will look red in the picture, uh, but it's really a fairly weak red. Right. Nature is filled okay. with, with grays. A lot of, there's a lot of gray in nature. And um, in most scenes in in the real world, there's really not that much chroma in every category. You know, you can you can actually map color schemes three dimensionally. But you're not um, really after the real world either, though. It sounds to me like you're trying to avoid that color salad. You know, just trying to create a harmony that's not necessarily in the world. The starting point for me is to find an emotion, a feeling. Uh, and to try to convey that with the, whatever tools I have at hand. I mean, Norman Rockwell talked about throwing a rubber ball against a wall. And mm -hmm. if you feel emotion, if you feel something, you have a, a chance of conveying it in a picture. Um, like in this case, I, I wanted to look at this little uh, restaurant. This is in Ireland, in Dunleary, Ireland. And it was daytime and nothing about the building really inspired me that much. But I wanted to imagine what would this look like at dusk as the lights are coming on inside the restaurant. So I changed the lighting around, but kept the form similar to what I was looking at. And just to create this sort of nostalgic view at nighttime. Turns out it's I went back to the same spot at night and uh, the lights, it's its just a daytime restaurant. They don't open at night. Oh, so no kidding. It never, it never actually looked like that at all. But in my mind's eye, I, that's what I wanted to capture. Yeah, and this is the one that I was thinking of when I asked you that and, and when I asked you about changing things because I saw this video and was just so floored by how you could make something so relatively boring and drab looks so interesting just by changing this scene, the time of day and adding the warm lighting and juxtaposing that with the cool light from the moonlight. It's just incredible. Well, thank you. I mean, there's a variety of transformations you could do in a building like this. You could have it floating up in the air. Uh, I did that once to a museum in Switzerland. Really? Uh, it's a science fiction museum. I had it. I did just like I did one that's sort of a literal painting of what I saw, but I, I came back another time and I was sketching this museum, and I have it floating up in the air, connected by an umbilical to the Jules Verne Museum. This is the <laughs> Maison d'ailleurs in um, Yverdon, Switzerland. Yeah, and um, and so I had to imagine what this thing would look like at a different angle, floating up in the air, and it's just sort of an on-the-spot surrealistic approach. It's 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 better to do on location than from reference because you can walk around, look at things, 
Uh, if, like I did one where I went to a car museum and I had the cars coming to life, like elastic bending and twisting and the rearing up. Uh, I was inspired for that one by Heinrich Klei's pen and ink drawings. Hmm. Heinrich Klei, for those who don't know him, is a German draftsman uh, around 1918 or so who did these incredible uh, drawings of train wrecks and giants and people and he did it all with a pen and ink and just had this amazing imagination. And uh, to do that on the spot is a fun challenge. Okay, two more questions. Speaking of imagination, you have an amazing imagination because there is no YouTube channel out there like yours with all your little mechanical devices that you use instead of a digital solution like for your links and so on and so forth. And it's just it's too cool. Can you talk a little bit about how you came up with all of that stuff? You know what I'm well, talking about, the, right? Yeah, no, the reason like I have uh, end graphics, which are little mechanical gadgets that I make. I mean, you know about this because you have a, like a wood shop, right? Yeah, yeah, metal shop and yeah. All that but stuff. I don't, I wouldn't have so thought I, to I, do that. It's really cool. I'm just, I'm too stupid to learn the digital like uh, after image or whatever it is that people use. So I just, I, the only thing I really learned is green screen, which is pretty basic compositing. Is that really, uh, come on now, are you just being humble? Is that really, no, was no, ignorance I, I really the main reason? That's the main reason. I mean, I, I learned how to do stop motion and- uh, <laughs> That's and incredible. I'm building, I'm building a new puppet that's um, a whole different way of articulating facial expression in a puppet. And I just do this for fun. My theory of how to design your career is to have 10% of your time for just fun stuff that you do on the side, just hobbies almost. And a lot of times the hobby becomes part of your career later. And that's what yeah. was true of Dinotopia. Dinotopia was just a series of paintings that I did uh, in my spare time while working for National Geographic. Yeah. And um, that way you always end up doing work that you love and, um, and having fun while you're doing it. It's sort of like if the old saying, if you haven't grown up by age 35, you don't have to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I, I wanted to ask I, you, I, I want to ask you, Jeff, like, what do you, what do you build in your leather shop and in, in your metal shop? I mean, I've well, seen some of your gadgets in your metal shop, but what are some of the unusual things you've built? Well, I use my, I use my shop for everything from, as you do, maquettes and stuff, but I also build furniture in my studios. I build my easels. I build, um, tools, um, anything that I can't buy that I think would help me with my processes, I'll build it. So, and, and I've also built furniture. If I want a custom, if I want a bag for carrying my stuff around that I can't find it with specific things, I'll make it out of leather or, or something else. And so, yeah, I just, like you, I just love to tinker. It's just fun. I've always, I always have. And you've created an amazing world around yourself. I mean, by doing that. Yeah. And um, yeah, I like mean, I don't you. Know how you get yeah. done all the things you do? It's amazing. Well, I don't. I don't get everything done. That's the problem. But so here's your video. Here's here's what I'm talking about for people who don't know. You have these great little mechanical parts to it. It's great. I just bought a whole bag of mouse traps. Those are mouse traps. Are you serious? And with little catch catchments that release them. So that they snap up in place. Yeah. Because I always thought those end screen um, 
moments in a YouTube video was an opportunity to do something fun. Okay, so, so it's not very... really, so it's not entirely ignorance. You enjoy making these little things, and it's a and it's excuse to play, is what it sounds like to me. Right, right. Yeah, it's an excuse to play, and and just being the son of a mechanical engineer, it's it's sort of what I grew up with. We had yeah, my dad uh, was the the son or the grandson actually of a the inventor who goes back to the nineteenth century, uh, who Frederick Gurney, who built radial thrust ball bearings, no which are way. used in a lot of industrial machines. So we always had like steelies and really heavy steelies and we could win at marbles because of these steelies that are always <laughs> rolling around in our in our drawers and uh, lots of tools. And I think it's really good to raise kids learning how to use a lot of different kinds of tools and, and learn how to do stuff. I agree. I, I taught my kids how to use tools and it's, I think it's good for them. Okay, so last question, I'm gonna let you go. If you had one piece of advice that you could give to an aspiring artist, what would it be? I think it would be to stay curious, to keep experimenting. Uh, people often say, uh, don't worry about failure. If it happens, you can learn from failure. I agree with that. But there, some people make this into a doctrine that you should try to fail or you should seek out failure. I disagree with that. Yeah. I think the way to avoid failure is to experiment and test things out. So if you're trying a new technique, Test it on a scrap first. If you're right now, I'm trying to come up with ways to make a flexible mask or puppet. So I'm doing a lot of test swatches of different kinds of fabrics before I build the actual thing to make sure it's going to work. Um, so experiment in a test form because failure is not something you really want to have happen. Failure is not, not a good thing to seek after. Um, but uh, at the same time, a failure is not devastating in art, unlike say a hang gliding or wingsuit flying. You know, it doesn't kill you if you if you have a bad painting, and if you're making a video of it, you can always press the delete button. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if you want to succeed, you have to keep trying things out, and uh, and just basically having fun with it. Oh, I want to show you my little sketch of you. You did not. <laughs> You're wearing the same green shirt. You did that while well, we were talking? You got to be this to kidding you. me. You're the best. I'll, I'll mail this to you, Jeff, because uh, you said you wanted a sketch, so You're I'll send so it to cool. you. You're so cool. Yeah, man, seriously, I idolize you. I think you're amazing. And I can't believe you pulled that off while you were talking to me this whole time. That That's mind-blowing. <laughs> well, it's been fun talking. Great questions, yeah. and uh, it's always a pleasure. Yeah, next time great. you got to draw me. Yeah, you know I'm not even going to try. But <laughs> <laughs> thanks for being on the show. Thanks for tuning in to the Undraped Artist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe, and if you could leave a comment or review, that really helps the channel. Please share the show with your friends, and if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.